0: Lord, thank you for being such a friend. And we know even now, you are being a friend to Russian soldiers, to Ukrainian soldiers that know you as Lord and Savior, and to those who are calling out to you for the first time in this time of, of danger and meeting their new friend and Savior. Lord, be in that situation. We just ask that your mercy be upon that whole situation, Lord. We don't know what you're doing, but we know that you know what you're doing and what you're allowing. So Lord, I just ask for your mercy to be there. And be with us now as we open your word. We know that we need your Holy Spirit to give us insight, to teach us, to help us retain what we hear and what you're speaking to our hearts, to help us be willing to to live out what you're speaking to us. So help us with that, Lord. Be with those who are ill in our congregation. I especially lift up my wife right now and ask for a quick recovery for her. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, welcome, and if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you stopped. If it's on your vacation, that's a special blessing that you stopped while you're on vacation to worship, and we appreciate that. Glad to have you with us. Um, We just go through the word of God and we are in, you happen to have joined us when we're in the letter to the Corinthians, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verses one through 16. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, They should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the Apostle Paul has been addressing some of the the problems in the church in Corinth. In fact, uh, a good part of the letter, I think the first 11 chapters, 12, 12 chapters even, um are addressing these different problems that have arisen in the church. And there's been, Paul had been there for a year and a half, and they had, he had written them once, they've written him once. So this is actually the second letter of the Corinthians. We don't know anything about the first letter. Apparently, it's been lost. Um, but he's dealing with all these problems that have arisen in this culture. This morning in our Bible study, we talked about how uh how decadent the city of corinth was and if you wanted to call someone very immoral you called them a corinthian and so it was a very corrupt society so this church is the the believers have come out of this culture and are, are gathering together but they're having trouble with their the 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 past and the problems within the city and and their past lives and so Paul's clarifying for them God's boundaries for healthy marriages in this particular passage. Verse 1 again says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You see the, that last part of the verse is in quotations. In other words, this is what they had written to him. And apparently the church of Corinth had, had written about abstinence saying, well, you know, we're having such trouble with this, maybe it's good for a man not to touch a woman. All people people should just be abstinent. Um, That expression, touch a woman, was a Greek idiom for having sexual relations. Prostitution was an an accepted norm in the city that made it difficult for the new believers to, to give it up. And Greeks believed that it was impossible to be sexually satisfied within the bounds of marriage. So it was just a cultural norm. Thus, Corinth was a cesspool of sexual indulgence. The church seems to have decided the best way to deal with it was to abstain altogether. They thought all believers should remain abstinent if they wanted to be pure. Our culture today has become quite a bit like that of Corinth. It's no wonder because we're taught in our educational system that we're just an animal. We're maybe a higher form of animal, but yay, we're just animals. And so why should we behave any differently than animals, at least not the non-monogamous animals, right? Sometime, when when you have you're just wondering google monogamous animals it's very interesting it's fascinating because there's a lot of them yeah. so the idea ignores the the soul this that you can just be sleep with anybody it actually dehumanizes us some people in the church had gone to the other extreme never have sex the body is evil but that can't be true because god made the body and he said of all his creation that it is good in fact he said at the end of chapter one it is very good so paul was writing to give this balance to their mindset towards sex biblical sexuality is the only view of sexuality that can properly account for the body and the soul. Verse two, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The Bible tells us of Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and God said the two shall be one, not the three or four or more. The patriarchs show us how messy bigamy can be, right? You just remember uh, Sarah and Hagar and uh, uh, the, the wives of Israel. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That is what God's creation of marriage was intended to portray. It's among those good things that God created. And we were designed to find our other half with all the differences which make us whole. It's often frustrating. Amen? Come on, be honest. And as, it, and as we learn um, to honor each other above ourselves, but it's also a tool that God uses to mature us. It's a blessing to share life intimately with another. Your spouse should become your closest friend. God designed marriage. It's a sacred union between a man and a woman. You know, when our city decided to pass the LGBTQ ordinance, they also decided to try to do away with our religious liberties. At the city meeting before the vote, I stood up and reminded the council that almost every major religion in the world believes that marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman, and I have to add biological man and biological woman. I asked for an exemption for churches so they could maintain their religious freedom. And I was ignored and they voted unanimously uh, to pass it. And said that if I offered to officiate any weddings, I had to offer to officiate any wedding. In addition, they said, nor could we let our church building be used for organizations unless we let them be used for all organizations. So I asked the mayor, I I said, well, do you mean that if the Satanists want to come in and slaughter a chicken in the worship of the devil, that I would have to let them do that? She said, that's the Supreme Court's decision, and they've made it. Well, that's not how I read the interpretation, but that's how our city understands it. And it's funny because a little, about a year later, the city called and asked if they could use our, our hall downstairs. And I said, you need to talk to your mayor about that. And a few minutes later, she called back and apologized, which was, I appreciated. But if you take down God's boundaries, where does it end? I mean, this is where it started, obviously, but where does it end? With their reasoning, how can they say bigamy or pedophilia is wrong? The church must uphold the sacred union of marriage according to God's design. Paul tells us one reason to be married is to avoid sexual immorality. Instead of abstinence, for most people, the answer is marriage. Sexual intimacy bonds a couple together when it's with love and the needs of one another in mind. And that's why in verse 3 and 4, Paul explains that you have the, your, the right over your spouse's body, but he or she has right over yours as well. Your body belongs to your spouse, and that is a picture of Christ owning your body. For you are his bride. The verse just before our passage today reminds us that we were bought with a price. Therefore, we should glorify God with our bodies. Verse 4 For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is God's plan and Jesus affirmed it in Mark chapter 10, six to nine. There's a balance in serving one another in love, even sacrificially. This equality in the bedroom was quite different from Roman culture where the husband had his way. For those ascetics in the church, this was a real reversal for Paul's saying that sexual passions within marriage are normal and a healthy part of marriage and a way to serve one another in love. Regular sexual relationship helps each other's each spouse to avoid temptation and thereby helps in their service to the Lord. That means God is pleased that we follow his design in his way, which is the way of love. That's very different from being given over to lust. Lust is going after the body Love is going after the person. If an individual is passionate about someone just for her body, that means he doesn't love the person. He just wants the body. The Bible shows that sex is a beautiful gift given to humanity by God to be enjoyed as a blessing within the context of a faithful, monogamous marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A married couple can abstain from intimacy but only if both agree and for the purpose of, to be devoted to prayer for a time. And after that time is over, they should resume their normal relationships to avoid temptation. The gift of sex within the boundary of marriage is a foreshadow of our prayer intimacy with Jesus. That's why you can set aside the shadow for a time to focus on the reality of prayer. It's pure and undefiled giving of ourselves to Jesus as he gives himself to us the seed we receive in our communion with Jesus is the living, endearing word of God. Notice how it's contrasted with perishable seed in 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Let the Spirit speak the word to you when you pray and pray as you read the word. It's fascinating to me that, that when Muslims see dreams or visions of Jesus, they usually report that he quotes scripture to them. And it's usually John fourteen 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. One Iranian woman, miraculously saved from a suicide attempt, said Jesus appeared to her and quoted to her what she later found out to be the entire chapter of Psalm 91 the seed of the word in a heart that is receptive brings new life in us. Paul warns that to not keep regular sexual relations can give Satan a chance to tempt us. The natural desire in us is ignored when one partner refuses to have sexual relations and if that goes on for a long time, his or her partner will be tempted to look elsewhere for that intimacy. You're harming yourself when you punish your spouse by withdrawing from intimacy. And this gives Satan an opportunity to destroy the marriage. If there are physical reasons, see a doctor. If it's emotional, you may need to see a counselor. But in either case, be open and honest with each other and pray together about the situation. Verse six, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Not all people have the gift of abstinence uh, and being single. Most would find single life to be too tempting. Men seem to struggle with this more than women. However, both sexes have a God-given desire to be with a partner of the opposite sex. That need is Kind of unexplainable because we have so many differences that we're required to constantly compromise our desires. Marriage can only be all that it should be when we find our satisfaction in Christ. I'm gonna read that again because that's very important. Marriage can only be all that it should be when we find our satisfaction in Christ. If you're trying to fill up that emptiness with your spouse, it's never going to happen. The only one that can fill the emptiness God put in us is Jesus. Some people, like the Apostle Paul, have a gift of of a much more diminished desire, and and they're so passionate about the Lord and their ministry, they don't have time for a relationship. Paul was so dedicated to his calling that caring for a spouse would have become a distraction. You know, most of John, John Wesley's ministry, he wasn't married. But then later on in his ministry, he he married, um, and it didn't turn out well. I met a, a man one time. He led a, a fairly large church movement in California, and he was a full-time school teacher And he had a family with a number of children. And the the triple commitment meant his wife and his children all paid the price. Disciplining one's own children should be, I'm sorry, discipling and disciplining, but discipling one's own children should be a priority for an elder or for any of us for that matter. The good behavior of an elder's child is one requirement for them to be an elder. The law teaches us in the Shema to continually teach our children. If you're passionate about ministry and not distracted from it by desires for marriage, then don't marry. That's a great gift or calling. Now, to become a rabbi in the first century, you were required to be married. Elders, in fact, are to be the husband of one wife. So again, we see one man or one woman. Now, some translators say this means a one-woman kind of man. In other words, not flirtatious. And to counsel married couples, one needs to understand what they experience. So singleness must be a gift uh, for someone who's evangelist or other ministries besides being an elder, though Paul certainly had a shepherd's heart and addressed marriage here and in a previous letter. The Catholic Church tried celibacy. It still tries celibacy, and it's turned into a nightmare of abuse. To try to remain single without having the gift can be dangerous. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widow, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I believe it's easier for widows to remain single than it is for a surviving male spouse to do so. The widow can be devoted to the Lord if she's able to exercise self-control. If one is unable to resist thoughts and urges, stated here as burn with passion, then it is better to marry. Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. In Malachi chapter two, verse 16, it says the Lord hates divorce. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church and divorce ruins that image and sends the wrong message. If you must separate, then remain unmarried or be reconciled. Paul tells us this is the Lord's command, not merely his suggestion. And that gives us a strong motivation to work things out. I always tell people that you can't change your spouse, but you can change your expectations and demands. You can die to yourself and be gracious considering the grace that we've received. Amen? Amen? Have you received a lot of grace? Then we should be gracious toward our spouse. Amen? God works through marriage to teach us to be more like him. And the only way a marriage can be all it's meant to be is for each partner to be selfless. And the only way to be selfless is to go to the cross. Our present culture is so me-centered, and that's what makes marriage impossible. We look for the perfect spouse who we think will meet our needs. He or she does not exist. Sorry ladies, Prince Charming is a fantasy. And the only perfect husband is Jesus. And sorry men, there isn't a woman on the planet who wants to live solely for you and your desires. Get over it. (laughs) Marriage is self-sacrifice for each other or it is doomed. You can't meet in the middle of 50-50 arrangement and each make demands of the other. Marriage is 100-100. Each needs to give their all to the other if it's to last. If you think that you're giving your all but your spouse doesn't, congratulations, you're being like Jesus to the church. Keep it up, though, and he or she will slowly be changed by your faithful love. That's implied in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. If he or she does not change, remember, Jesus keeps on loving us even when we are unfaithful. And remember Hosea and Gomer. I doubt anyone has it that tough. Only when we see that Jesus is our greatest need, and the source of our satisfaction, can we be realistic in our expectations of our spouse? Marriage can be beautiful and fulfilling, but not when we seek it to be that for ourselves. but rather when we seek it to be that for our spouse, because our needs are met in Jesus. There are cases, of course, of physical and emotional abuse where counseling is needed. You know, it's. Uh, Most of us grow up in homes that aren't the perfect example. And so we need to break unlearn patterns that we've learned. Scars from our past can be expressed in unhealthy ways. The word of God can correct all that, but sometimes a good Christian counselor is needed to give you the tools to help in the process of change. Verse 12 through 14. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife, who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Boy, was that confusing to me for a long time. Paul has no scripture to back up his opinion on this matter, but he must believe this suggestion is from the Holy Spirit. Do not leave an unbelieving spouse. They may come to Christ through your influence. Now, this cannot be saying the spouse, uh, the unbelieving spouse is saved. And I say that because verse 16 asks, how do you know whether you will save your spouse? You see? that implies that they are not saved, but may become saved through your witness to them. So if one is saved and the other is considered holy, while in the relationship with the Christian, Paul implies the children of a Christian, then are set apart for God. We should claim this for our children, amen, and grandchildren. Again, this doesn't mean that they're saved, but rather that God looks upon them as those considered to be a set apart for him. And they are saved when they come to a personal decision to accept the forgiveness of their sins made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus in our place on the cross. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Not enslaved means they're free to marry again, not bound to the unbelieving spouse. Instead of living in turmoil of, the demand and of demanding that they stay when they don't want to, Paul says, let them depart. They may find the Lord in return, and I've seen that happen. Um, one particular case, the woman thought there was some, someone better out there for her, and the, the world was just... Um, tantalizing to her, and she had to go out and try it, but ended up realizing how good she had it. But when she came back years, several years later, her husband had already remarried. And I've also seen unbelieving man return in, ta- in, return in time to his, unbelieving, to his believing spouse. And that, in the situation I'm thinking of, the wife is still trusting God for his salvation. The emphasis in these verses is not our freedom to remarry, but the hope of the salvation of the unbelieving spouse. The world looks at marriage in a very selfish manner. The woman wants a man to support her and give her children. The man looks at marriage as a way for a woman to meet his sexual desires and care for his home. Each wants the other to serve them instead of desiring to serve like Jesus continually serves us. The design of God for marriage is that the man provides the loving care, protection, and provision that the wife longs for, and the woman provides the respects and assistance the man longs for. Those God-given desires, as opposed to the desires of the fallen nature, see the spouse as a gift from God to be appreciated and valued. It's to be seen as a way to learn about our relationship with God. I often find that when I'm failing to be the spouse I need to be, it's because I'm not reflecting the relationship I should be having with Christ. My ego's gotten in the way and I'm not expressing the grace that God continually expresses towards me. It all comes back to our relationship with the Lord. If I complain about my spouse to God like Adam did, I'm just showing the same ingratitude he showed. Lord, it was the woman you gave me. Remember, he had the perfect wife designed for him and him alone, and he still complained. Verse 16, for how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? Here's the reason one should remain with their unbelieving spouse. The Christian's godliness in words and actions, the love that they express, the pure agape love, should draw their spouse to the Lord. Unfortunately, I've too often seen the Christian spouse misrepresenting Christ and being quite different from 1 Peter 3, 4, which says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. A contentious and demanding spirit not only drives the spouse away from you, but from Jesus as well. Part of the curse from the fall was that woman's desire would be to rule over her husband. The husband is called to lead and craves respect. The woman longs for love and wants to have her way. And the resulting clash is reflected in our high rate of divorce. Christians, however, should serve one another in love. They should recognize the other's need, the woman's need for love and the man's need for respect. But sadly, our divorce rate is barely below that of the culture around us. The expectation to this rule, of course, of, of lifelong commitment is unfaithfulness, death, or an unbelieving spouse who wishes to depart. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Did you? I don't know if you knew this, but in Arizona, we have a covenant marriage. You can choose to, if, whether you wanna have a, a civil marriage or a covenant marriage. And if you choose to have a covenant marriage, then you have to, to sign certain agreements. It's, it's interesting. I didn't know it until one couple I was uh, going through pre-marital counseling brought it up to me. It's a beautiful thing. Um, and I was really worried about their marriage because uh, the counseling didn't go really well, but they're still together. So maybe that covenant marriage thing really works. But regardless of whether the state thinks it's a covenant or not, it is a covenant with each other and with God. If one partner is unfaithful to the other, then they've broken that covenant. There's always hope for restoration if there is genuine repentance. The spouse is free to marry, remarry if the covenant is broken, or the spouse has died, or the unbelieving spouse wishes to depart. What Paul has presented is the value of marriage and the value of singleness. Both have their place and are gifts from God to be used for his glory. We're challenged by scriptures to see that our marriages represent Christ and the church. Our intimacy with Christ should be reflected in our marriage. Married or single, let us live for the glory of the one who purchased us with his own blood. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Jill to lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.